Please do turn to uh, Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, the Pew Bible, it's on page 876. People throughout all of, of history to this very present day. And, that, and that's true of virtually every culture, a cross-section of socioeconomics or education, or even people of variety of religious sensibilities, there's always been uh, this interest in how the world will come to an end. Obviously, there's an abundance of theories as to how the world came into existence and who was behind that or who wasn't, which is hard to grasp, uh, especially. But there's just as many theories about how the world uh, will end. And, uh, and not only, not a question of, of if, but when and how it will end. In 1499, a uh, highly respected German mathematician and astrologer, Johannes Stoffler, predicted that the end of the world would come on February 25th, 1524. So that would have been maybe 25 years uh, ahead of, uh, of his time. Why? Because on that day, of all the known planets, they would all, of all the known planets, they would align under the sign of uh, Pisces, which is the water sign. Thus, he predicted that there would be this great flood, and it was coming on its way. It would swallow the whole of the earth. And so hundreds of, pla- of pamphlets were distributed announcing uh, the heavy, grim news. And, uh, and there was a little bit of a panic that ensued. And so people believing in this oncoming doomsday uh, decided to buy a bunch of boats. And, and boat sales went on, uh, on you know, skyrocketing, most notably. There was one German, a noble, Count von Eagleheim, who constructed a massive three-story ark. You know, there's just some irony at times, though, because that particular year of 1524 ended up being a significant drought altogether in Europe. I had, a, I had an assignment. I think it was maybe a, a, you know, a physics class or something in high school where you had to do a report. I did one on uh, Halley's uh, Comet. And uh, I don't know if you recall, but that's a comet that makes its way close to the Earth about every 75 years. And, uh, and people are concerned at times that at one of those, that the last time was 1986, that it would collide into the Earth and that would be the end of us. There are even people uh, that, uh, that you know, said that the, the tail of that comet had this gassy uh, poison and that you needed to take these anti-comet pills. And so people began to prepare safe rooms. They sealed off you know, any weaknesses of ventilation in those, those rooms for that gas. Let's keep going, right? There was this thing called Y2K. Right? High schoolers, middle schoolers, children. That was 23 years ago. Y2K. A lot of people thought. Then there was the 2012, the, the Mayan uh, apocalypse that people were, were thinking would happen in 2012. Then there was COVID-19. COVID-19, many thought, thought oh, that's one of the four horsemen that is uh, spoken of in Revelation chapter 6. And that's going to be uh, the doom of the whole world. Uh, in the immortal words of REM, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. <laughs> well, let's just explore this a little bit more. Maybe let's look at it from, not from the vantage point of history and speculation. Let's look at it through the lens and through the words and the interpretation of our king who has all authority, Jesus. Remember, last week, Jesus has already been saying things as we move into this last portion of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is getting ever closer to the suffering which he predicted uh, on the cross and in Jerusalem. But he, he has these things that are controversial, that, that, that challenge us, that maybe even in some ways 
disorient us. What he's saying is bold. It's, it's largely controversial and unpopular. Now, there are two extremes when you talk about the end of the world, right? There are two obvious extremes. There are some who are entirely obsessed with the notion and are, are looking for it uh, in particular ways and headlines and studies and history and whatnot. And then there's others that are entirely altogether apathetic about it. They could care less. Uh, they, or, whenever you say that, is it they couldn't care less? I, I never get that right. You get the point. There are some people that are altogether apathetic. I think somewhere in the middle is obviously a balanced perspective because Jesus, again, going back to our authority, who is our king, has a lot to say uh, about the end of the world. And uh, like I said, it, it can challenge us. When it comes to the end of the earth, though, Jesus is not, consi- not concerned with the when, but the how, and more importantly, the who. So even as we are going to read now, I know you just sat down. Let me invite you to stand one more time. Uh, in deference to God's word, let's read this portion as Jesus responds to a question. And as I read this, listen for the who of that second coming, the end of the world. Luke 17, beginning verse 20. Hear this. This is God's word. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that is Jesus, answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, behold, the kingdom of God. It's in, for it is in the midst of you. 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days that the Son of Man will not see it. And will not, you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will, there will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was, as it was in the days of Lot, there were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on that day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Then there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? Well, he said to them, where are the corpses? There the vultures will gather. We'll pause there. You may be seated. Okay. I think you're going to agree we need to pray. Can I get an amen? I'm also going to cover part of chapter 18, but I'm going to read that in a little while. Let's ask God's help. Father, you are God the Father. We pray that you would work through your word by the power and the persuasion of God the Spirit so that we might see more clearly God the Son. We might even, by faith, be transformed more into his likeness, the perfect picture of love. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So you will have to put your thinking cap on. Uh, you're going to have to bear with me. In fact, believe it or not, this is so out of the, well, out of the ordinary that I forgot to grab it. Uh, but from time to time, it's very rare. Now you're really wondering. Uh, I use a diagram. 
Uh, I don't use diagrams and I don't use charts. I'm even going to be a little bit critical of uh, maybe Chad and uh, Jason can help me. Grab one. Today I'm even going to be slightly critical of diagrams. And you're going to say, why are you using diagrams, Troy? And that's, that is out of the ordinary for me. And uh, I can explain some other time on the top of your lunch, which I probably owe some of you anyway. Uh, I'll explain more of why it is that I don't, in the context of preaching, uh, use diagrams. However... I think this might be a helpful reference point. It might be something that you could use to kind of calibrate your understanding uh, as to where we are when we talk about the kingdom of God. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we sometimes say the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says that. There's other times that, that Jesus refers to the kingdom, like in this passage, where we think of it as something that is future, that is not yet, that is on the horizon. So just for a brief moment, if you would bear with me, this diagram is not the focus of this passage, but I think it helps us make sense of this passage a little bit more. And to help us understand, uh, there's two lines uh, on the diagram. I probably should have put a, a little bit larger diagram, but there's two lines. Some of you are getting out your reading glasses. Uh, I'm almost at that same stage. You see, there's two lines. There's a higher one and a lower one. There's the age that uh, is the present age, which we know in this life, on this earth. And then there is an age to come. Uh, there's, a, there's a present age and then there's an age to come. Uh, you'll notice at the very top there, there's a, there's a crown. That's to signify the kingship uh, of Jesus. When he came, he brought in a new age. He brought in a new era uh, that there's, there's hope and promise on the horizon even when he shows up. And so there's an age, if you look in the very center, there's a place that's, that's no longer. Since the coming of Christ, significant things have changed. Maybe I ran out of them. I thought I printed like 60 or 70. Uh, sorry, maybe you'll have to share. Uh, there is, uh, there's, there's a throne, you'll see there. There's a, there's a throne and then there's a cross. Uh, excuse me, there's a, there's a crown and there's a cross. That's Jesus' first coming. There's a lot that's predicted in the Bible about Jesus' arrival as Messiah. He comes. Of course, the angels delight, shepherds delight, many of his disciples, his family's confused. Jesus comes, and many people, of course, uh, reject him. But the kingdom has begun. The kingdom has been uh, inaugurated upon Jesus' arrival. I'll get into what I mean more of that in a little bit. But then there's another time coming that is the second coming of Christ. And that is when we will enjoy the end of this age and the, and the, the beginning, not excuse me, the beginning, but the continuation of the age uh, to come. In the in-between uh, is what we would refer to as the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is already in its coming. It's been inaugurated. You see that with the cross of Christ, his life, his, his uh, death, his resurrection. And then there's another day that has been, has been told to us. We read of it even in Revelation in our call to worship that is not yet. And so we're in this in-between phase. The, the kingdom has been inaugurated, but the kingdom has not come in the fullness of its expression with Jesus on the throne. And so Jesus is already reigning, but not in his fullness when he comes back uh, to judge the earth and to establish a new heavens and a new earth. That is the not yet of the kingdom that we long for. I hope I'm making some degree of sense. If I'm not, then you just take this diagram home, study it. Like I said, let's have a coffee or breakfast. When Jesus uh, came and uh, when they were looking, there's this question that he's in, re in response to. Here's how I'm going to break down our passage today. Uh, there's the already kingdom that he's referred to uh, in the opening two verses of chapter 17 or, or of our reading of it. Verses 20 and 21. You see this listed in the order of service. The second is the not yet kingdom, 
which is verses 22 through 37. And then it will, will touch upon what life looks like in the already not yet kingdom in chapter 18. So the already kingdom, right? That's the kingdom that we know since Christ has come. Here there's a discourse that begins, verse 20, in response to a question. The Pharisees say, when is the kingdom of God coming? We don't know their exact assumptions or their exact agenda in asking this question. But for many of them, the Jews knew oppression. They knew the, they knew the, uh, the Roman rule. They were glad to seek and to, to savor the thought of a day when there would be great deliverance. When uh, they, would, they would no longer have to deal with that. A, a kingdom where uh, God would, uh, would, would look after their interest and, uh, and move aside their enemies. And Jesus is saying, it will come. But it won't be in a way that you would see and observe in obvious ways. In other words, you're looking for these precursors, these indicators, these signs, these big world events that, lo and behold, the end is near. And to do that, you would be mistaken, Jesus is saying. You already are. Jesus says in verse 21, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's, it's, it's a proximity thing. It's so close that you can't even see it right now, in essence, Jesus is saying. It shouldn't surprise us because there's other places that Jesus says, like I mentioned earlier, that Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's, it's, it's present, it's real. It seems so close, but isn't it quite subtle? Jesus is saying the kingdom, is, the kingdom of God is here. In fact, it's right in front of you because Jesus is saying, I am the king. So I'm already, I, I'm already here. And then we also see in the testimony of the Gospels that Jesus demonstrates his rule and reign as a king. Because what does he do? I don't know about you, but I would think that someone has a degree of authority over nature if they walk on water. Thank you. Some of you are awake. Uh, if, if, if Jesus is able to take simple loaves and fishes and feed an entire multitude, I think he has some degree of authority. If he's able to uh, cast out demons and heal disease and to reverse sickness, then something tells me that he has authority over a variety of realms that he is king. So we already know that the kingdom of God did enter in with Jesus's own birth and his ministry and his, his life. We saw that many times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. But they have just attributed at times his work, even in casting out demons, as ridiculous as it sounds, that's just because he has demonic power. And Jesus, of course, corrects them. How could we pass? Why why would I cast out demons with the power of Satan? That wouldn't make any sense at all. Dale Ralph Davis, my favorite commentator, he says the Pharisees can be our teacher here. The Pharisees can be our teacher here because they tell us that it is possible to be concerned with the kingdom, but to ignore the king. It's possible to be fascinated with last things while neglecting the first thing, the primary thing. The Pharisees um, did not see Jesus as king, but the disciples did. Jesus is saying, I am the king. And we as his followers, by faith, look back to his first coming. And we also look with great and with thanksgiving. And we also look, which we did during the Christmas Advent season, 
But we also sing and long for and look with anticipation to his second coming. So we're, that's the not yet. So there's the already and then there is the not yet. And where do we live except in the tension of the already not yet? There's things that we enjoy and know in part, but not in full. We have now the assurance of things like because of the already, our forgiveness, that we have been made right, that we have peace with God, that we have an inheritance that cannot spoil or fade. But it's not yet. We know that he will come and he will he will rid the world of all tears and sorrow and sadness and sickness and cancer and conflict and war. But not yet. Here we are in the already looking back, not yet looking forward. So the kingdom of God is that. We know that that's the not yet we read about in December when we we studied briefly uh, Isaiah chapter 11. When there's these rich promises about the, 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 the vision that Isaiah has of a Messiah's new heavens, new earth. When animals... And, and humans even get along. Those who used to be enemies are, are actually at peace with one another. Well, that's, they missed the already. Okay, Jesus is there. But what about the not yet? That's when Jesus pivots in verse 22. And he starts to speak to, as Luke records for us, verse 22. He speaks to the disciples, to Christians. What can they expect? Jesus is going to say to them, you can expect to be persecuted and face many trials and hardships in this life. Jesus is saying, uh, you know, if you need to keep your eyes fixed on me because a lot of people haven't. And, uh, and there are plenty of people, though, that are fascinated with the return of Jesus, many followers of Christ. Jesus anticipates this, verse 23. Look here, look there. There's going to be these signs. There's going to be these, these cursor, uh, precursors. And Jesus totally nailed this issue. It's not that he couldn't see or perceive knowing all things, but boy, I mean, he really nailed it. There, and there are, there are entire YouTube channels devoted to uh, when is Jesus going to return? And there are entire books and charts and, and conferences and, and, and tons and tons of interest surrounding uh, at different times. There's been this, this focus on when is Jesus returning? Jesus says bluntly, do not follow them. You will be doing a fool's errand. You will be, it'll be a fruitless exercise altogether. Elsewhere, Jesus says, Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 24, no one knows. The angels don't know. He says even the Son of Man himself does not know the day and the time when he will return, when God will return. Back to our text in verse 24, he's just saying, listen, when it comes, it will be sudden. It will not be foreseen. It will be undeniable when it comes. It will be unavoidable. It'll be like the flashing of light. It'll be like fireworks going off in the sky. It will it will be altogether undeniable. But you won't see it coming. So, yes, there is a day coming with fireworks. But Jesus at this particular time is saying it is subtle. It is in your midst. But in the meantime, Jesus says, let's look at our text. Chapter 17, verse 25. Jesus tells them, but first, referring to himself, he must, the son of man, suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
what do you mean? I mean, to his, his hearers, we see in hindsight a little fuller. But to his original hearers, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, aren't you just going to go and become the king? Aren't you going to just establish your rule and reign? Right now, for, for, for everyone, just do it. Even Peter, confused. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they, 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 they discuss this and he reveals himself very clearly to them. He says, yes, that's right. I am the Christ. Peter, so pumped up. I got it right. I knew it. I love you. I'm excited. This is wonderful, Jesus. You're going to be the king. We're going to see, we're going to see the oppression and the enemy and all, the, all these issues reversed and, and undone. And, and you're going, this is great. This is awesome. And then what does Jesus say next? From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter is dismayed. Peter is undone. Peter is deeply troubled, so much so that he has the audacity to pull Jesus aside. You can read it for yourself in Matthew 16 and says, Jesus, this ain't happening. You know, anytime a story begins with so-and-so rebuked Jesus, you don't need the background music of a feature-length film. You know this is bad, okay? Peter, get behind me. You're, you're, you're like Satan to me right now, Jesus says in reply. You don't have the things of God and eternity in mind. You're missing it. I must suffer. Friday night, I just, you know, I think about that range of emotion, the turmoil inside. I, Friday night, one of our, our boys had a, a basketball uh, game here in town in, in Pembroke, and we, we were at the gym, and we're cheering them on, and then they're kind of, they're kind of shorter games, and so, you know, boom, it's halftime, okay? Tip off right after halftime. Uh, lo and behold, a guy, probably a, a fifth grader, a, a little on the younger, smaller side, uh, he gets the ball, and he is so excited. But you can tell he is super concentrating, and he goes up for a shot, and, and, and he hits it. And, and he is he's surprised, and everybody, everyone's surprised. And there's cheering, and his team's excited. But lo and behold, it was the wrong basket. And this guy, I mean, he went from... From, this might have been his first, his first goal of a long, who knows? He is, he is off the charts elated. And then you see them debating, no, no, at halftime we switched. And he has this look. His countenance changed so rapidly and his emotions struck him so hard that his chin began to shake. And his, his, his countenance just so altered and changed. It's... it's can you imagine how heavy that is? It's disorienting. He's embarrassed. He's dismayed. He, he, he's angry initially. Like, you're totally wrong, ref. No, I'm so sorry. You just scored two points for someone else. If we're living in the already not yet of that tension, don't tell me there aren't times when we feel that longing, like this is so good and there's so much, but 
yet there's so much that's not right. Even in the course of one day, there's just this immense struggle internally when we're longing for the not yet of the kingdom. We're glad we have the already. We're glad we have Jesus, but we're not yet there. And we groan and we, we, we're, we're confused. Well, Jesus goes on to say, guess what? To the disciples, you will be hated. You will be misunderstood. You will be persecuted because you're associated with me. Because you love me. People will be greatly tempted as a result of that to grow, to, to just give up or to just grow cold. Fine. I wish I'd never even known him. I'm not even going to the basketball game. Forget it. It's, this, is, this is nonsense. I'm not following anymore. I don't want to do this. Okay? Jesus says, you might want to be ready. They're not signs. In fact, there will be no signs at all. The only sign will be a very abrupt, undeniable, inescapable appearance of Christ in the clouds with power. It'll be overwhelming. Then to further dissuade any speculation as to when will this come about? When, when, when? The scripture, by the way, nowhere in scripture does it promote the study or the inquiry of the question, when will Christ return? It's not encouraged. The question of when is not encouraged in scripture. The question that is encouraged is, will you be ready? Will you and I be ready? And then to illustrate the nature of that second coming, Jesus employs some imagery here. One of them was the Old Testament narrative, which we read earlier from Noah. Noah spent over a hundred years building this giant boat. Surely along the way, people inquired, what on earth are you thinking? This is what God told me to do. They had ample time to get ready. They saw the righteousness and faith that, that Noah possessed. But of course, they carried on with their life. Eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, all good things, but they're just living life, normal, with no reference, with no consideration, with no view, with no, no obligation to the living God, their maker. There were no signs, there were no occasional showers building up to the monsoon month. No, it's one day, the sky opens up and a flood destroys the earth. It's judgment that comes crashing down. Verse 27, they were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. There's no time. It's kind of like when Katrina, the hurricane hit New Orleans. The city knew for decades that it was unprepared. New Orleans knew that if a major storm came, there was not enough infrastructure in the city. The fact of the matter is most of the city is under sea level. But even with the forecast and the looming storm predicted, there was not time. It was too late. Many people fled. Others decided to stay. A thousand people died. A hundred thousand people lost their homes. And for many years following that, everyone moved out of the city. It was desolate, by and large. 
Then Jesus uses this imagery of four people, right? Well, he also says, by the way, he's saying it's going to be so fast. There, even, if, even if you have a sense of urgency, you will not have time to come down off the rooftop to gather your things together. And then he uses these four people. In verse 34, there's two people who are asleep. And then there's two women who are working uh, at the mill grinding together. Now, just a word of clarity here, because some of you are thinking, oh, this is where they get the idea of the rapture. They, being Christians who have taken the Bible and have come up with this interpretation, which is not mentioned in Scripture. But here's where it is. And I grew up around this interpretation. They said, oh, it's just be terrible. There's this theory that that some will be taken up uh, and and saved and and you don't want to be left behind when Jesus comes back. Just some people are going to just poof and disappear. And those are the Christians. And you're going to be really sad that you're left behind. Small problem. The word here taken is violence. It's justice. It's judgment. And it's like the people who are outside the ark. They're taken and they're swept away. And they will be left for dead as corpses. Jesus is saying that's where they'll be taken. So you want to be left behind and not taken. And by the way, it doesn't matter who you're associated with. You could be intimate and close, a companion of someone who knows all of the good news, is surrendered by faith to Jesus and knows they're looking for the not yet. And yet it will not save you either. You better know the king and surrender to him. When Jesus returns, he's going to bring judgment. This is about an inescapable, undeniable accountability that comes with Jesus' second coming. And there are no second chances. It will be sudden. This sounds crazy to Americans, right? The the notion, the idea about accountability, I mean, we live in a culture where people essentially feel like there's, the only accountability that I have is to my feelings. Let's be true to you. That's all, you need to make sure to be you. Your rugged individualism, isn't that Isn't that the the theme of accountability? Be true to yourself. Everything else will work itself out. You need to be hidden, and I need to be hidden in Christ. If you want to enter the ark, the door is Jesus. I remember during Y2K, there was great fear uh, there was also a lot of embarrassment for Christians who decided, oh, let's pack up and retreat and we're going we're gonna to homestead it and we're going to can goods and get our guns and we're going to get our rations and survival kits and have a shelter. It's really easy to be at times anxious and fearful. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as a comfort. It's the reality of our frailty as fallen human beings. It is easy to be fearful and anxious times, especially when you watch the news and don't read God's word. It's easy to be anxious and fearful when all you think about is your safety or your personal preservation and you have no, you know, have no gaze or no look or no consideration as to the bigger story and the age to come. We're supposed to prepare, not, not for the doom of you know, a, a full pantry, we want to have a full heart that's ready to meet our maker. He will come quickly.
So there's the already. We know Jesus. He's, he's shown us his kingship, his authority, his reign, his rule. And yet we haven't enjoyed or seen all of the fullness of what he, br- he brings. And that will be at that great end when he returns with, with justice, but also with hope and with a, a, a new heavens, a new earth to reverse the curse. But that's not yet. And so here we are in the already not yet. And Luke would take us a bit further. So let's read it now together. These opening verses of the next chapter, chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always, they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who, was, who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For while he refused... He, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor, nor respect man, yet because this widow just keeps bothering me, I will give her just, justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay longer over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, Will he find faith on earth? In this parable, there's an exhortation. Maybe you consider it an invitation. And then there is a promise to, to keep praying. This invitation is to keep praying for justice. And someday, the promise is he will bring it. Be persistent in that prayer. That's the invitation. And the promise is he will make good on it. But if it was easy and foreseeable and predictable and all those things, then we wouldn't have to be exhorted that there's a promise to be persistent and patient in that waiting in prayer. The widow here is persistent, and that is a good quality. The judge is independent. That's somewhat of a good quality. He doesn't fear the opinions of man. The problem is he doesn't fear God either. So he's not particularly righteous, but he just is worn down now. Jesus is not, by the way, saying, oh, the father in heaven, everybody is like this judge over here. It's actually more of a contrast than a comparison, because he's saying if if even a, a reasonable but unrighteous independent judge will show and give justice, How much more then will a compassionate father meet us and the cries of his people, his children and sons and daughters? He knew that we would struggle. That's why he's saying this. Don't lose heart. I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to give up. If he was was ready to dispense with his children and he was exasperated and annoyed and frustrated, he he would just write us off. Praise be to God, he doesn't. He invites us, no, come, cry out to me. I will show you. I will show you, but hang in there. Suffering is real. Suffering is is substantial. It will seem, though, short-lived, Jesus is saying here, it will seem short-lived, not at the time, in the already not yet, but someday it will seem short-lived in comparison to the weight of the beauty of the glory of God revealed. Someday. Hang in there. Some will give up every single day. The exhortation here is that we should, we should stick it out 
in prayer and in persistence and in patience and perseverance. Because every day we are closer to that day. But what that difficult road of the already not yet reveals is that some are not true. That some are not there. Some will give up. That's why he asked the question in verse 8. Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? In that already not yet period, who will persevere? We live in the already not yet kingdom. Not yet fulfilled. This will be ushered in. This present evil age, Jesus will come and judge the earth. He will establish justice and peace and new heavens and a new earth in the age to come. Jesus is trying here to prepare his disciples to live in a difficult time of trial and tribulation. So the the encouragement to you this morning is don't be alarmed, but don't be apathetic. Jesus is telling disciples and Christians what they can expect. You will be misunderstood. You will be persecuted. You will be tempted to give up. Hang in there. Don't grow cold. Here's what I want to say as a takeaway in response to this by way of application. One thing I would say that we could do is that we could invest and trust in things that last. By the way, your feelings are not part of that. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, the fluctuation of feelings. Who was it I was talking to yesterday about the nature of contentment? I can have it at you know, eight o'clock in the morning after spending time walking in the woods, praying to God. And by noon, it's like, poof, that feeling of contentment has just rocketed out into who knows where, because it ain't, I'm grumbling. I feel like giving up. I feel like people are against me. I feel like everything, you know, I'm going to get myself in trouble if I say anything else right now. I'll just stop. But you know what I'm talking about. Feelings are not to be trusted. They can deceive us. We don't have the capacity under those emotions at times to interpret things and people. I need to trust and invest in things that last. Because if all you care about and all I care about is my feelings and my agenda and my family and my safety and where I'm going, then you won't care about the kingdom of God here. And you say, well, that's, but that's, that's what you're saying. You're saying, think about the kingdom to come. Don't worry about this world. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Christians are called to. Going back to, going back to New Orleans and the disaster that happened post-Katrina, a friend of mine, Ray, who's a, a Presbyterian pastor, he moved down there. He, soon thereafter, Katrina hits. He could have said, gee, I came to the wrong place at the wrong time. I guess I'll just go back somewhere else because this is not worth being here. No, God used him to mobilize team after team after church after church, thousands of people coming in to to provide relief, encouragement to rebuild their homes. He started spreading the gospel in word and in deed. To trust in the things that last, the kingdom of God, the word of God, doesn't mean that we don't care about homes. It It just conveys that we know where our ultimate trust and home is. And we're glad to help other people, even if it threatens our money, our time. Second thing I would say is that we ought to, in view of this, and and like I said, the question that Scripture asks is not, when's Jesus coming? But are you ready and prepared? My second thing I would say by way of application as we read this is to stay awake, to be alert. Be sober-minded. Focus on the love and the truth and the hope of Jesus 
And that will shape your prayers. It will shape our prayers for our daily bread. I won't be, I won't be de- led astray and, and detoured and dismayed and, and deceived because it's like if I stay there, if I live for him, if I seek his mercy and I seek his aid in prayer in the persistent way that this widow did, then I'm saying, God, I don't, there is no way. It's, it's almost like I need to eat and I've got to survive. And God, where is it? Because it looks like my pantry is bare. And I can tell that tomorrow I'm going to be starving and my life's going to be a wreck and I'm going to be miserable and so on and so forth. And he says, but I didn't ask you to pray for everything you need a month from now and six months from now and six years from now. I told you to pray for your your daily bread. So live today. Don't don't do this. Live today and he will prove today. God, I need to get it through. I need to get through today. But the reason that sometimes we can't get through today is because we're not focused on today or the God of this day, the grace of God in this very day. The last thing I would say is dress for the light. So invest in and trust in things that last. The second thing I would say is to stay awake and be alert, praying for that daily sustenance, the daily bread that we need. The last thing I would say is dress for the light. On the day that Christ returns, there will be mourning. It's undeniable. It's inescapable. It's, that's what Jesus is saying about the flashing of light. There won't be time to prepare. The glory of the power of the undeniable flash of the glory of Christ, though, will be a great comfort to us. Once we get up off the ground and realize the holiness that is in the sky is the irresistible light stream that C.S. Lewis calls the irresistible light. Lewis writes in an essay of the world's last night. He says, we can perhaps train ourselves to ask more and more how. More and more often how the things which we are saying or doing or failing to do at each moment will look when the irresistible light stream is upon us. That light which is so different from the light of this world. And yet, even now, we know just enough of it to take it into account. Women sometimes have the problem of trying. I, just bear with me, okay? So, <laughs> now this like, some, something's about to get insensitive. Okay, well, C.S. Lewis probably wrote this like 100 years ago. So just bear with me, all right? Women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light how a dress will look by daylight. That is very like the problem of all of us to dress our souls not with the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next. The good dress is the one that will face that light, for that light will last longer. Friends, cover yourself. Hide yourself in Christ. We will stand at the judgment, not on the basis of our own merit, what we put on. If we're to survive, we are to experience what the prophet Isaiah says. We know that our righteous deeds, which we may have tried to put on, are like filthy rags. But if we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, by repentance and faith, we will be cleansed. And we will stand there in joy. And in the joy of a new city. So let me close just by reading this 
few verses from Revelation and we'll pray. Then I saw Revelation 21, a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Father, we long for that day. 